So please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be starting from verse 15 and we're going to read to verse 27. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer, confessing that it is so often that we rely on our own strength, Uh, to live for you and to trust in Jesus. But our strength is not enough, for there are threats both within and without uh, that continue to tempt us uh, to desert our trust in Jesus and to live for him. And so now we pray, Father, that you help us not to rely on our own strength to understand your word and to apply it, but that we'd be prayerful and, and always rely on you to be doing your work through your word in our lives, for us to be able to hold on to our trust in Jesus to be able to hold on to living for him and not for anything or anyone else. I pray especially for myself that you help sustain me for the next half an hour or so, that you help my body to be able to hold up uh, as I preach your word. Uh, please be with us and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it would seem that no matter what we do in life, especially things that are important, we will face threats to stop doing those things, correct? Uh, so whether it is like right now, uh, in a church service, sitting under, uh, listening to a sermon, and you're wanting to, 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 to listen and respond to God's word, uh, there are threats. And there are two kinds. The threats that are kind of luring you away, and there are threats that are kind of pushing you away, right? So for instance, right now, maybe the lure of the outside. It looks so beautiful out there today, isn't it? It's a beautiful Brisbane winter's morning. You could be at West End Markets right now, having a Hungarian langos. Right? Or you could be at the beach. Or maybe walking around, you know, in the great court, lying on the grass. Things that entice you to go somewhere else out of here. Then there are also things that are kind of within in here that might be pushing you out. Maybe the seats are not quite comfortable enough, right, for you. 
Or maybe you're sitting next to someone you don't really like. Or maybe internally there are a lot of worries that you have that you've brought in from the week. Worries about family, about work, about health. And so you're unable to focus because of both external lures as well as internal things kind of pushing you away from the moment. There are also threats to all the things that we do in life that are important. And and we see in this letter that, that John wrote to this church that there were plenty of threats that they faced especially to do with a, a group of, of people that have left their midst, and it caused a whole great uh, lot of doubts uh, as people left into the world as they left the church. Now, we saw in the last couple of weeks the, the first threat uh, that the people had to face up to, and that is the, the false thinking, right? It was an internal threat, a false thinking about sin, the false thinking that someone can walk in darkness, in disobedience, and think that you're in fellowship with God, this kind of false thinking, this, this lie, living a lie, that you could live as you please and still think that you're walking in fellowship with God. Now, in our passage today, John deals with two more threats. The first is a lure, right? The world threatens the believer by luring us away. And then we see the threat of the Antichrist, the world's Antichrist threatening the believers by causing doubt within. So the world luring us away and the Antichrist causing doubt within. And John writes, because it's important for us to know and feel the threat so that we'll know how to respond to these threats with the right defense to be able to stand firm. So we get into the first threat, the threat of the world. Now, what is this world that John speaks of that we aren't to love? Well, John spells it out for us in verse 16, doesn't he? It's the aspect of the world that sort of stirs up three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in the kind of life that we have, the things of life that we manage to possess. So that last one there, the, the pride of life, uh, you'll see in your little footnote there at the bottom, some of your Bibles, that it says possessions. Uh, it's not quite the same word as life, as in you know, having life, but it's kind of the things of life. Uh, that's what it's saying there, right? And that's, a, that, that's what this uh, world that John is talking about, is it's the, the things and the values of this world that lures us, that... that, that, that appeals to us, that entices us to give ourselves over to, right? So the flesh, right, is one of the Bible's ways of talking about our sinful nature, our sensual urges that demand to be satisfied. And this world offers many pleasures for our flesh to devour and to feast on. Pleasures of the sexual kind that many of us are very familiar with. Uh, uh, giving over into greed for, for more pleasures and things, or even the greed of ambition. Feeding even things like our inner rage monster. You know when you, when you fly off the handle because you don't get what you want? It's, it's part of the desires of the flesh to get what you want, so you, you get angry, and you, and, you, and you demand. The eyes... It, it kind of is what, what you, how you look at the world from a superficial perspective, right? The, the superficial value of things. And once again, the world is a beautiful place that, fe- that, that, that entices the eyes, doesn't it? Things that we chase after and that we lust for and that we even worship. So we lust over beautiful people, don't we? We love beautiful people and, and, and gorgeous houses uh, and fashionable clothes and exotic locations, 
and beautiful looking food. Because food nowadays isn't just about putting it into your tummy for nutrition, it's Master Chef. Steve? <laughs> it's the biggest worshipper. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> But, you know, beauty, isn't it? It's not just about the, the, the holiday or about the food or about the clothes or about the people. It's about the beautiful. It's about the things that we lust after and desire with our eyes. The world is great and enticing our eyes. And then there's the pride of life. Or better put, pride in the things of life. And the world is certainly filled with many possessions to have and to take pride in. It offers positions of power and influence to take pride in. And the more we have, the more things we have, the more authority and influence we have, the more proud we become. The world is so great at appealing to our desires of the flesh and of the eyes and of our pride. And, and John says here in verse 15, all of these things are not from God. The things of this world, the the actual created things, yes, they're made by God, but but the love for these things, the way the world entices our desires in this way, is not from God. Elevating the world to something that it's not, chasing after it, lusting for more, worshipping the stuff of this world, is not what God gave us this world for. This world is not supposed to shape and define our identity, and give us meaning. John warns us, don't love the world like this. And we need to listen, don't we, to this command, to this instruction, because we are lovers of the world. It's so tempting, isn't it? So easy to succumb. Part of the reason why I have reflux this morning is because I've been battling this all week, right? Many of you know I'm a materialist. I don't care so much about experiences. I don't want to spend money on food and holidays, really. I want stuff, right? Give me a new phone or a new computer or a new TV or a new pair of shoes. And it's a constant battle. It's, it's, it's a love that, that I have for the world. And others of you have different ways of succumbing to the world's temptations. But we must resist. We must resist. And God, John gives us two really great reasons for resisting the love for the world. Two great reasons. And the first and biggest reason is seen in verse 15, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the, world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this could mean that we don't love the Father, right? If we love the world, it's evidence that we don't love the Father. Or it could mean that if we love the world, that the Father doesn't love us. Okay, it could mean either. Either way, if you love the world, in either direction between us and God, there's something missing. There's something empty. If you love the world, there is no love of God. One or the other, black or white. Now, why is it so extreme? Why is it so extreme? Now, in life, we kind of don't really work like that with love, do we? We love many things at the one time. I love uh, fried chicken and ice cream. Not together, but I love them separately and many other foods. I love rugby and I love tennis and I even love cricket. Even test match cricket, right? Five days of watching grass grow. I love that stuff. Now, okay, maybe the Bible isn't talking about love like that. It's too superficial. But even when it comes to relationships, we love people 
multiple people. I, I have three daughters that I love. Sometimes they're hard to love, yes. Well, I love my three daughters, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then there are times in life where we do have exclusive love, don't we? For instance, my love for my wife, to the exclusion of all else. Now, that's one aspect in life where I can only love faith with that kind of love that only I can have for her and not for anyone else. Well, I shouldn't, and I cannot, because that's what the relationship is about, right? So there are aspects of life in which you can love many things, but just in marriage you can see that there's an exclusive kind of love. Now, when it comes to God, He has made it clear. You cannot love God and also love someone or something else. You cannot love God and love someone or something else. This love of God is speaking about a love that is fundamental, that is core, that is reality-defining kind of love. A love that exceeds even the exclusive love between a husband and a wife. You know how sometimes we talk about how we, we sell our soul over to something? Well, this is the kind of love that we're talking about, right? A selling of our soul. You can either sell it over, give it over, embrace God, or the world. You can't have both. If you can imagine our souls having arms, it can only fit around either God or something else, right? The arms of our soul can only embrace one. And so John says, if the world is what your soul embraces, if it is what your life revolves around, then you love the world. And the love of God is not in you. Huge stakes, isn't it? Love the world, you lose your heavenly father. You lose your creator and your eternal joy. Is it worth it? Now the second great reason we see in verse 17 and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right, the world is passing away. It's all going to burn up one day with nothing left behind. We talk about momentary pleasures, and that's exactly what it means. It's momentary, here for a moment, and then gone for eternity. And John's saying, why would you tie your eternal destiny to something that is temporary? that will pass away. You wouldn't buy a beat-up old car on its last legs, would you? You wouldn't buy shares in a company that's already announced its bankruptcy and its foreclosure. Right? You know, you're, you're smart people. You won't do that. So why would you buy into a world that is passing away and give up eternity with God? Now, many of you here wear glasses. Uh, you're short-sighted. That's where the hands are, right? So you're either wearing glasses or you're contacts because you're vain. I'm just kidding. No, it's because it's uh, convenient. It's convenient, not vain. Convenient. Who's short-sighted? Put your hand up. Right. Man, that's about half. Okay. Truly Asian church. That's good. With, uh, with uh, you know, even non-Asians are wearing glasses, so it's great. Now, let me tell you that your short-sightedness is a blessing. Right in disguise. It's a blessing to be short-sighted. The fact that every morning when you wake up and you've got to put your glasses on or you've got to put your contacts on to be able to see the world clearly is a blessing. Because you realize every time you do that, that short-sightedness is a problem. Right? 
to be able to have a short-sighted view of things and not be able to see the distance is a problem that putting on glasses, putting on contacts every morning helps to remind you of. That we live not in a short-sighted way, only for the moment, in a world that's passing away, but that we have to live for eternity. So for those of you who have to wear glasses and contact lenses every morning, praise God. I mean, you put it on, right? It's God reminding you. It's a, it's a visual aid or, a, or a, 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 you know, to help you. Visual aid. That's a, sorry, bad pun there. But uh, for you to, to get that. Now, if you, you're not short-sighted, that's all right. You're not missing out. Every time you see people with glasses and you're tempted to laugh at them, and you're like so proud because you're, you know, perfect vision and all, uh, let them be a reminder to you uh, that you don't have those cues, but when you see them, you can thank God for the reminder that their glasses reminds you to look forward into eternity and not to live for the present world that is passing away. Now, the lure of this world won't be so strong if you know what's at stake. If you know that if you embrace the world, you will lose the Father. If you embrace the world and it will fall away and disappear, hopefully you'll see why you'll be convinced not to go chasing after the things of this world. Now, from the threat of the world, John then moves on to something more specific, right? The threat of the world's antichrists. Now, the world lures us out by enticing us. But I think these antichrists are doing is they're pushing us out by creating doubt and worries. Now, the moment we read verses like verse 18 in the Bible, and we see things like the last hour, right? My little show is the last hour, and there are antichrists. And straight away, many of us will have these images and ideas pop into our head, put into us by pop culture or maybe even Christian culture, where you've got this mental image of some ultra-bad evil individual with metaphorical horns that you can almost see coming out of their heads, some world leader or some spiritual figure who is going to lead people astray in this apocalypse, right? Uh, I was Google searching it. I didn't put it on the screen. But uh, I saw a mural of uh, Donald Trump with kind of horns coming out on a wall. Have you seen that one? It's quite a famous picture around the place. And we had this idea, right, of, of it's this last days, antichrist, no, 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 right? It's really supernatural, spiritual, apocalyptic kind of imagery comes into our brains. But if you read your Bibles carefully and plainly, you will see very clearly that the last days and the last hour refers to the period between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. Now, the proof is really here in the passage. John is literally telling his original readers, decades after Jesus' resurrection, that they are in the last hour, right? Verse 18, it is the last hour. He didn't say it will be the last hour. It is the last hour then. It has been till now, and it will be till Jesus returns. And what are we to expect in this last hour? John says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. And in fact, many Antichrists have come. Now, the word Antichrist simply means someone who opposes, who is against the Christ. Right? Antichrist. anti It's a prefix. You know your English grammar, prefix, the word, the thing you put before words to modify the word. So, you know, like anti-Semitic is to be against the Jews. Anti-perspirant is to be against the perspiration, right? (laughs) To be anti-homework, right? Or to be anti-whatever, right? Is to be against something. That's the plain and simple anti-against the Christ. 
Now, the Antichrist idea is all the way back from the Old Testament, where God spoke about this Messiah, which is just the other way of saying Christ, Messiah Hebrew, Christ Greek, that when God raises his Christ, that there will be people who oppose his Christ, his Savior, his King. And then when Jesus came, we saw this in the Gospels as well. He taught it over and over again, and Jesus, the Christ, experienced opposition from those who were against him as the Christ. And we see this here in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And so John defines it for us clear and simple. The Antichrist is the one who denies that Jesus, right, the, the, the child born of Mary, the man who grew up in Nazareth and walked around, uh, around Ju- Judah and, and, and Galilee, the one who did miracles and, and, and died on the cross, this man, Jesus, is not the Christ. That is the Antichrist that John is speaking about. And by rejecting Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, they in fact have rejected the Father. Okay? And John states that the reality that his readers have experienced is that many Antichrists have come. Many who have rejected Jesus as the Christ. In their gatherings in this early church, there were Antichrists who rejected Jesus and left. Now, you might be asking yourself, who in the church would reject Jesus as the Christ? Now, this is where it's important to understand the early church. Right? It seems strange that anyone here would one day say, I don't believe Jesus, and then leave the church. I mean, it happens. But in the early church, you've got to understand that Christianity comes out of Judaism, right? the Jewish religion. The Old Testament is Judaism's scriptures. Right? God chose, at the beginning, the Jews to be his own chosen people. But as we know, God's plans were for salvation for the entire world, for all people, but through the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Christ. And so the Son of God was born into the world as the man, Jesus. And he came to fulfill the plans and promises of God from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes, Jewish hopes. And so, a true Jew, a true follower of Judaism, if they were to read their scriptures and they were to trust God, they would end up becoming a true Jew, i.e. a Christian. In a way, a Christian is a true Jew, correct? But of course, as we know from the Gospels, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Christ. And we see here in 1 John that the Jews continued to reject Jesus as the Christ, So as a first century Jewish Christian, if you can imagine, transport yourself back 2,000 years, you're a Jewish person, grow up in a Jewish faith, you become a Christian, and then suddenly the people that you used to hang out with, people in your homes, people in your synagogues, people in your temples, and they start saying, "Mm, this is not for me, I do not believe Jesus is the Christ, and then they leave, can you imagine the kind of doubts that it will create for you? Right? You're in a difficult position, you've been together all your life. Worshippers of God. And then you think that you are a true Jew by believing in Jesus, God's Messiah, but then these fellow Jews have, have left. They were all once together, weren't they? But now they're separated. And, and you wonder when you're left behind whether you're believing the right thing. 
you wonder whether you're believing the right thing. Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Christ was a huge threat to Jewish believers of Jesus as the Christ. Now, for us, we don't say, face the exact same threat. There, we're not a Jewish people. We're not Jewish people growing up together, and then suddenly people have left because they reject Jesus the Christ. But, but in a similar way, I think we, we face a very similar threat when our peers in the church, our brothers and sisters, those we grew up with, they, they leave the church. That can create doubts, can't it? It's quite uh, interesting that Simon's here because one of our classmates who was with us in first year left the faith after first year, quit college, because he had serious doubts about things to do with Genesis, which caused him to doubt whether he needed to be forgiven and whether Jesus was all that he needed to be in his And it's not an uncommon experience for us to see people leave the church and leave the faith, even those who were leaders, even those who were pastors and even missionaries. And not to mention the millions and billions of unbelievers out there in the world. And not just in the world, but more importantly, in our families, in our houses, in our communities, in our social circles. The unbelief of others... The rejection of Jesus by people that we know and love and even trust can create such huge doubts as to whether we should hold on to our trust in Jesus. And this is what John is dealing with here, isn't he? And so the first thing that he says at the end of verse 18 is, therefore we know, therefore we know that this is the last hour, right? He wants to help these people overcome this internal threat these doubts. The first thing he says is, know the situation. We know that it is the last hour. This is happening because it has been predicted. It is not surprising. It's the way it's supposed to be. Don't be surprised by unbelief. Don't be surprised when people leave the faith or reject the gospel. We are in the last days. Jesus prepared his disciples, telling them, telling us that he will be opposed. So don't be surprised and don't be afraid and certainly don't leave the faith because others have left or others don't believe. Now the second thing he says is not only do we have to know the situation, we also need to know that we're in the truth. We need to know that we're in the truth. And how do we know? Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now think about what John is saying here. He's saying to these believers that they've been anointed by the Holy One, right, the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and John says that he knows that they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit because they know and profess the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, Right? So the evidence for why he is so sure that they have the Holy Spirit is because they know and profess the truth. He writes to them as those who know the truth, and that is the evidence for why they have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look at that, verse 27. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie just as it has taught you. Now, what has been taught in this context is the gospel, right? That Jesus is the Christ. And it is the anointing that teaches this truth. 
And so the fact is, if anyone believes in this truth, it is because they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Now, the Apostle Paul says pretty much the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. You know that passage about spiritual gifts? It really isn't about spiritual gifts. It's about having the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 12, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, it says this, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, chapter, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, is really about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the, it was only the person with the Holy Spirit that can say that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, for those of us who have been Christian for some time, perhaps those who have known and believed that Jesus is the Christ from the very beginning of our awareness of anything, I assume a lot of our children will grow up their whole lives saying this simple statement, Jesus is the Christ. And we would read in scriptures, Jesus Christ, maybe two million, five million times in the course of our lifetimes. And it would seem to be something very mundane and very matter-of-fact to do to say Jesus is the Christ or to say Jesus Christ. But it is the most spiritual thing that you can ever do. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is a big deal to be able to utter with your lips and believe in your hearts that Jesus is the Christ. Because that, my friends, is the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. The greatest spiritual experience of all is confessing Jesus as the Christ. So if you do that, don't let the unbelief of others worry you and cause you to doubt. Let their unbelief remind you that they lack the Holy Spirit. They need your prayers, not your doubts. Now, if knowing the truth about Jesus is such a big, big deal, then it follows that abiding and remaining in this truth is all important. And I guess it's the third way to overcome the antichrists. If the truth is what the Spirit teaches us, then our abiding in the truth is assured by the Spirit who abides in us. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now, on the one hand, John puts the responsibility on the believer, on us, to remain in the truth, right? Remain in the truth. The responsibility is given to us to stick with the gospel message that was told to us right from the very beginning, the message that hasn't and won't ever be changed, Right, the very heart of the Christian gospel, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, his atoning death and his victorious resurrection, all these things, they will never, ever change. They're what has been taught to us from the very beginning and there's what remains. There's no new message, no novel new ideas, there's no modifications and no additions and certainly no subtractions. In a way, being a Christian is really, really, really easy, isn't it? We just hold on to what we are given, to what we've been taught. You know, for all you kids out there who are learning things from Mark's Gospel, even for those in year one, 
learn that Jesus is the Christ, they will never learn anything more than that, really, when it comes to the fundamental of the faith. What we've been given is everything. Holding on to faith in Jesus means eternity with the Father and the Son. Now, on the other hand, and even better, than us having to hold on to these truths ourselves is that we have God's Spirit dwelling in us to hold these truths in us. Verse 27, final verse of our passage. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Now, saying that we have no need that anyone should teach you isn't saying that teachers and pastors and Bible study leaders are useless. Well, we're we are relatively useless in comparison to the Spirit. I mean, we're kind of useful. But the point being made here is that as important and as good as human teachers are, the most important teacher that we have is the Holy Spirit. And He abides in you. If you currently now confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Spirit abides in you and He will teach you all that that means and He will hold you into that truth. And so let's rest in Him. Let's abide in Him. Now as Christians, we face many threats. As Christians, we we face many threats, right? The world is luring us away all the time, enticing us, enticing our flesh, our eyes, our pride. The Antichrist caused doubts to rise from within. From within our midst, there will be those who will leave the church, who will leave the faith. There will be family and friends who will resist the gospel perhaps their whole lives. And it will be very worrying. And John writes to us to help us to be prepared Some of us are more susceptible to the lures of the world. Others are more susceptible to doubts. It is important to know what you're susceptible to, isn't it? And John says, know. Know that we are in the last days. Know the temptations. Know the lures. Know what is it that makes you worry. You know, examine your life this coming week. And one of the questions coming out later on is, Which one are you more susceptible to? As you think about your past week and the coming week, what is it about the world that so tempts you? For me, it's mainly the world, I feel. I'm not really too too bothered about unbelief. I'm a pessimist, so I expect for people to reject Jesus and and me and others, Christians. Uh, But the enticing of the world, that's my problem. Others enticed by getting great grades, being able to be more successful in your music or sport, looking good in front of the boss, getting bigger houses, uh, upgrading your car, your shares, whatever it is. And others are more bothered by things in the church. You know, church gets messy, doesn't it? And, And people rub us up the wrong way. People leave. People struggle in their faith. That can be a worry too and cause doubts. And that can cause you to worry about whether you can stand firm in the long run. Whatever it is, God's word today urges us to abide in the gospel that we've heard. 
whatever the world offers, the love of God in Christ is much greater. Whenever doubts arise, know the Spirit abides in you to hold on to you. Isn't that great? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. Whether we realize it or not, whether we want to engage with it or not, we are faced with threats on every side. Whether it's the lure of the world enticing us, enticing our flesh and eyes and pride, or whether it is doubts that are being generated from within, as we see maybe Christians walking in hypocritical ways or leaving the faith, or as we deal with the reality of so many unbelieving family and friends, and so much opposition of Christ in the world, we thank you that your word today brings us comfort and assurance, and that it urges us to hold on to you, to embrace with our soul a love for you and you alone, for us to be able to know clearly that this world is passing away, for us to be comforted with the fact that we have the truth, that we have already experienced the greatest spiritual experience of being able to confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ. And for the comfort of knowing that you have given us your Holy Spirit, which is the reason why we can do this, why we can say these things, why we can believe in the first place. And we thank you so much that he abides in us and will hold on to us. So on our part, help us to keep pressing forward, to keep holding on to the truth and abide in you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you, Pastor Ben. Now let us stand and sing our song of response and show us Christ. Let us uh, remind us to continue to trust in God, trust His Word.